Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, um, I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Song of Songs. We've been in the month of July, we've been working through it, and I, I think we have one more sermon next week, and I think we'll be, we'll be done. Chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. In just a second, we're going to read from the Bible and then ask God's help and blessing. It's good to see you. hope everyone's having a good summer. So the friend zones are, that matters to you, <laughs> but um, it matters to us. So, Okay, chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made with all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with a sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seats were, was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, your daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So that's the context for this morning. Chapter 4, how beautiful you are, my darling, oh how beautiful, your eyes Behind your veil are doves, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely, your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hangs a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Abana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of leopards. Verse 11. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 15, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Amen. Let's let's pray. Uh, Father, um, thank you for the two great gifts you have given this world, salvation and marriage. In each father, all we find and what we need most is your grace. Who, who God, who you have joined together, let no one separate. You saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of your mercy. The life we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself up for us. So if righteousness, and I would add, if a good marriage could be accomplished by merely following a set of rules, then Christ died for nothing. 
And Father, we know that he did not die for nothing. So please help us now, help me now in the most beautiful of ways as, as humans and if we are husbands and, and wives so that you will be praised and obeyed and loved as your word is preached and the way that your self-disclosure here deserves, God. And we would ask this to the praise of your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen. So one of the things I've been trying to do as I've been working my own personal studies through the Song of Songs is I've been trying to hear the voices of women in my head, good studied women who have wrote lots of stuff about this book. And one of them is Melissa Kruger. She has an online blog, which I follow. And in 2013, she wrote this. Over the past few years, my now 12-year-old daughter has been exposed to some rather uncomfortable subjects. Prostitution, homosexuality, whoring, female health issues, bodily admissions, and rape have all been discussed in her presence. You might wonder what type of parents we are. Do we let her watch too much TV? Allow her to listen to the wrong radio stations? Surf the internet without guidance? Actually, my husband and I are fairly strict about what we allow into our home. It's, one, it's been one particular outside influence that has reached our daughter. We take her to church. We take her to a church that preaches through the Bible, all of it, even the nooks and crannies, we feel quite shocked to hear mentioned in a room full of people. She goes on, isn't it better for a young person to hear about prostitution in a church service before hearing it on a playground or a school bus? Isn't it better for them to understand the beauty of marital intimacy through a sermon series on Song of Songs rather than a teen drama on TV? Eight years ago, she's helping me. Isn't that something? (laughs) By bringing these topics into the open light of Scripture, we keep them from being taboo with our children. If God's Word speaks about these subjects, then surely His church can learn to speak of them in a fitting way as well. Now, as you think about her words... Knowing the Song of Songs is, is for all of us to learn from, that this is wisdom from God. We cannot confuse the avoidance of evil with the avoidance of sex. It's discussion or even the avoidance of women as a cure-all for men or dating or when we are learning that our sexual needs are actually godly. Ladies and gentlemen, Isolation, mere isolation has never been the cure-all for fornication. And mere isolation is not the primary strength in our sanctification. And a pastor and their elders must shepherd the whole flock, which of course includes men and women and young people who are sexual beings and have God-given needs who need to be taught and reminded that those needs are good because God has made it so. There are boundaries, of course, but the needs are good. And I'm going to say it again. They are godly. And that takes us to our very first point, love displayed. So all of us live in a real world. And in that world, along with our own flesh, in fact, you could say, because the Bible says it all originates out of our own flesh, the temptations, We are constantly then offered dried up substitutes for these God-given needs. Now, one is the obvious one, sex outside of marriage. But we're also offered maybe not sex outside of marriage, but sex inside our marriage 
but also in our minds with someone else. We're even offered in a religious world where there are religious substitutes which replace or demote our God-given needs. So it's in the Bible. We're going to get it to in a moment. But typically the way it goes is there's the promise of new spiritual progress and greater spiritual death if, one, we just took a break from sex, or two, you don't even get married. But the Bible is so clear on that foolishness. And, and the Bible promises us that those things never deliver. This is the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 4. He warns of the doctrine of demons. Now, you, you hear that and you go, oh, what is it? And this is what it is. They forbid people to marry. Or 1 Corinthians 7. So there was a false teaching going around in Corinth that said that less sex means greater spirituality and no sex in marriage was ideal. Now let me give you an example of that. This is another story of I was in the backseat of a car, but this time it was terribly uncomfortable. I was in Northern California on my way to preach in a place, Ephesians. And the husband and the wife were in the front seat and I felt like a kid in the back and we got in the car and there was like tension immediately. And I am like hypersensitive to that kind of stuff. And the drive went on and they were nitpicking at each other and then they started getting mean to each other right in front of me. And I said, hello, what's going on? That's all I said. And this is what he said, the driver. He said, we were told by one of our mentors that we needed to not, they were married, to not have sex for three months because if we didn't have sex for three months, two things would happen. We'd be able to get closer to God than we have ever been before, and our lust would just be, you know, tapered down. Essentially, less sex means greater spirituality and less sin. That was a big fat lie. Colossians 2, same type of thing. There were people going around in the church saying all kinds of things. If you did this better, if you did more of this, a little bit more of this, spiritual disciplines, ascetic behavior, and, you know, if you tone down your body, this is what the Scripture says, don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle that, this, that, and the other. It's all going to pass away. I know those regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts of worship, the policy of self-humbling, self-abnegation. They, they're studying neglect of the body, but in actual practice, they do not honor God but simply an own, a person's own pride. It's right at the end of Colossians 2. You see, in love display, the Bible doesn't say that sex is the problem. The Bible does not say that women are the problem, so keep away from them. The Bible does not say men are the problem, but it does say that sin is the problem, and it does say that sin comes not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's Mark 7. It drove the Pharisees Crazy, because they're always trying to deal with the outside. Stay away from this. Don't do that. Don't look at that. And then the inside, they thought, that's how it got better. But Jesus turned that on its head. So the truth is that we're deeply broken people. And the brokenness is going to appear clearly in our sexual brokenness. And that's why, the, you know, the standard moralistic approach to sexual sin, you know, just stop it. And here are three ways you can just stop it. That is so powerless to change a person. It denies so many of the fundamentals of our humanity and the fundamentals of our humanity that the Bible so clearly tells us. And just as Jesus Christ is not a three-step program, right? 
Our marriages and our dating are not to be three-step programs. Therefore, the healing in this area will only come, and listen carefully, as we grow downward. Downward in our dependence on Christ and upward in our love for Christ and his gospel. That's how people change. People change by beginning to be honest. So in the same way that it's true that no one becomes a Christian by keeping the rules, we become Christians by despairing of our own righteousness, throwing ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, telling him we can't keep the rules. And then he imputes to us right from the get-go his very righteousness, his rule-keeping righteousness. It's the same in our marriage. Marriages are not going to flourish. You're not going to find satisfaction and keeping the peace, if you would, by obeying a list of rules. Marriages flourish by confession that God's standards are absolutely perfect. They're absolutely right. And apart from Jesus Christ, we have no power to keep them. And so we appeal to him for his mercy and for his forgiveness and for his power to change. Because that desire to, to be with the one you love, okay, and to care for them and to speak tenderly to them and give up everything from them until Christ returns or calls you home, that is the character of Christ in us. I mean, the gospel equivalence should boggle the mind. Our union with Christ, that word union, it's, it's a sexual term that Paul stole from the culture to explain our oneness with Christ. In justification, what does he do? In justification, does God talk down to you? No, he sees Christ and all he says is you are lovely, you are beautiful in Christ. Wooing, pursuing, reminding, not condemning. So, loved ones, we do not kill our idols by killing our idols because our idols are already dead. We, we kill our idols by being honest that they're dead, but sometimes we treat them like the hand puppets. You know the hand puppets where you stick your hand in there and you make the puppet come alive even though we know it's dead. And we make it have power that it doesn't have. And we make them seem alive. That's Romans 6 and Romans 7. But in our brokenness, in our honesty, and admitting the need for Jesus Christ, there is power to behave. And yes, yes, a thousand times yes, there is power and forgiveness when we don't. And you see, that's a real relationship. That's Christian. That's uh, honest. That's a pattern for life as long as we live in this flesh. Young people, it does not get easier as you grow older. Dealing with indwelling sin. I want you to think of it this way. I really, really like being married to my wife. But, and this is the truth, I personally don't think that I'm that great of a husband. But, when I'm, when I'm in my right mind, I tell God that. And in that, there is hope. And there's healing. And there's help. And what that does, it drives this down, this truth down Deeper and deeper. And love displayed is we find that God loves broken people. People who have been mistreated sexually. People who have broken their marital vows. People who are dealing with st stuff in that realm and it's tearing them apart. 
And so the fact that the Bible's wisdom in this beautiful song about love and courtship and marriage and desire and sex is connected with the name of Solomon, think about this. That's unexpectedly great news. I mean, this is a paradox. It's, the irony is rich. Now, most of the time when we go to the Christian bookstore and we look for a book on marriage, if you look at the sleeve, this is usually what it says. You know, there's Betty and Jimmy, and they have been married for 40 years, and they have six lovely kids and, you know, 15 tremendous grandchildren. And they're beautiful people, and they look really happy together. Okay, fine. They're good stuff. Good stuff. But in the wisdom of God, Solomon wrote this book of wisdom about marriage, which includes S-E-X. He didn't have that great of a life, did he? He played around. 300 concubines, 700 wives, a transgression of Deuteronomy 7.17. However, broken people, listen. Wonder upon wonders, the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit says, and this is conjecture, you know, you broken little man. You broken little man whose mother Bathsheba was under the psychological pressure of of one in power over her. And she acquiesced to to King David's advances. And he he slept with her. But it wasn't really sleeping together. It was more like a, a power rape. You broken little man from a broken home who exceeded God's limit, way past God's limit on sex. You, under the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to write what is honest and true about intimate love. Now, you have two options there. You could say, well, I thank God I'm not like other men like Solomon. Or you could say, that gives me hope. And does that not want you to praise God for such wonderful grace and such extravagant, lavish love? We'll call it otherworldly wisdom. And does that not make you think of, like it did me, of Jesus' earthly lineage? Remember in Matthew's gospel, three women in his lineage? Hey, Jesus, where are you from? Well, here's my people, three women involved in sexual sin, And one woman falsely accused of sexual sin. God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And one one reason why he does it is that so that no one will boast before him. And that's grace. That's grace. So the Song of Solomon, as we just get done with our first point, it's not living in a pretend world. It's a world that, that is just crushed with sin and crushed with brokenness. But, and here's the thing, it intends to leave you panting for desire, for true love like this. And to think that all the desire there and all the wording there, that's not automatically sinful. It's coming from God. And also, listen carefully, it invites you not to settle for some tired, tedious marriage. You got the rules on the fridge. This is life. This is lavish love. And so if you're not married, this might cause you to hold out for someone. And if you are married, it's going to cause you to hold on to the one whom God gave you. That's our first point. Love displayed. Now, secondly, love affirmed. 
Now, last time we said that before their bodies ever touched, their, their minds had been engaged. Now, let's not try to be smarter than God here. They, they were longing and they were pondering and they were thoughtfully gazing and thinking about each other. Remember, we called it a, almost like daydreaming. And when they were thinking about each other, they were thinking about every part of each other. And as you look at the text, we, we read it there, it's so descriptive of almost every part of the physical body. So they're thinking deeply about each other, and they're thinking about each other's bodies. Your hair is like, your legs are like, your mouth is like, your teeth are like. Long studied hours. Lots of brain power. Men and women, listen, lots of brain power contemplating their, their love for the person and the excitement of their love. And, and it's okay, their lover's body. Remember we said he seeth better things? The reason why he seeth better things is because he thinketh rightly about her. And the flow of the text is the love they have now is going to be affirmed publicly. That's verse 6. Do you see it there? So we find the groom. He's going to go get her and tell her he loves her and he wants to be married to her in, in the open air. So there's lots of pageantry here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Let me just read that again. Now be mindful. This is like the day of their, their wedding, the morning of their wedding. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it's Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with the sword at his side, that kind of protection mechanism, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it from the wood, uh, made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seats were upholstered with purple, its interior, look at the language there, inlaid with love. And then she goes on, and then there at the end, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now what should this do? It should give us pause. This is the lavishness of his love, the extravagance of it. it and the language, you can't escape it. It is sensual. By its very nature, it's sensual language. So this is his expression, and to a degree, her expression of legitimate, passionate, affirming, sensual love for her. And she is very glad. I mean, she's describing this procession that's going to take her to their wedding. And verse 7, you see it there? Solomon's carriage is, is a veiled way of saying, this is like a preview. It's their wedding bed. It's what's actually there. I mean, that's sensual. Verse 10, the interior of the carriage is laced with love. You want to go, oh my, right? That's a big deal. That's good language. And here in, in love's affirmation, we find that the premarital events are affirming the marriage night privileges. That's what's going on. It's like, this is coming, babe. This is coming. And not yet. But when it happens, when we say, I do, if you would, then all these things are ours to enjoy. In other words, it's playful. It's suggestive. It's a little bit of banter. There, there's some, some uh, pageantry publicly. And why is that the fact? To affirm publicly their feelings. Now, the language is suggestive to her alone, right? Because they're about to be married. But it's also descriptive to the people watching it. Okay, so they're in love. I'm her. She's mine. And everyone else, eyes on your own paper. Right? Uh, don't mess with this. Look how much I love her. Look at what's going on here. Leave us alone. I mean, that's one of the reasons we're a public ceremony. 
people there, and you say I do, and she says I do, and everybody goes, we can't anymore. We can't try to befriend them, date them. It's all over. These two are one. And so they're going into the first night of the rest of their life, and if you would, they're not playing dull music. <laughs> now, now, our next point are going to help us more, but you just have to understand the playful, suggestive banter, which includes the sensual language, that should only grow in marriage. I mean, Lord willing, as the years go by, the final chapters of Solomon, by the way, next week will underpin this. Because, listen, in marriage, we have the privilege of making love. We're not making bricks. We're not making bricks. It's sex outside the marriage, which is empty and beast-like in its quality. And it just sucks the life out of everything. It makes death. It does not make love. So when you think about that in, in this context of lust, lust is all about us. You're not talking her up in lust. You're talking yourself up and vice versa. That's what's so terrible about it. So a long time ago now, in the 1960s, there was a, a group of poets called the Liverpool Poets. And these guys were just basically writing, and a few ladies were writing poems about the fallout of the sexual revolution and how it just, it just tanked on them. They were promised all this glory and wonder of, if you would, free sex, and, and it and just didn't deliver. And I read this poem before many years ago, but I pulled it up again. Roger McCow, the act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind, and I lost the love some time ago. Now I've only the act to grind. Brought her home from a party. Don't bother swapping names. Identity's not needed. We're only playing games. High on the bedroom darkness, we endure the pantomime. Ships that go bang in the night run aground on the sand of time. Saved in the nick of time. It's cornflakes, then goodbye. Another notch on the headboard. Another day of wondering why. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. And I lost the love some time ago. Now I have only the act to grind. Loved ones, that is not a Christian marriage. Young people, you do not have that to look forward to. That has never been God's design. Remember C.S. Lewis's classic quote, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, only the sexual union, from all the other kind of unions that's there. And you understand what he's saying. He's like, when you go into marital love, the two becoming one is every part of you becoming one. Every part of you, your your spiritual, your emotional, your physical, the totality of your personhood, that's what makes marital love so beautiful. Here I am, as I am, and we trust each other, right? You don't have to worry about your spouse making fun of your body. Chapter 4, verse 7, do you see it there? There is no flaw in you. Remember the great, beautiful passage? They were naked and they were not ashamed. Sin comes in and ruins everything. And you think about chapter 4, verse 7. What is that? That is the doctrine of justification applied to marriage, right? When God sees you as a Christian in Christ, what does he see? There is no flaw in you. People see the flaws and you see the flaws. And every once in a while they'll tell you. But the only one who matters, God, in Christ sees you. And he says, Colossians 1, verse 21. You are holy in my sight, blameless, without spot, and free from accusation. Praise God. There is no flaw in you, and you put your name in there. I have a song that came to my head. All I do the whole night through is dream of you. 
All I spend in sweet content is, is dreaming of you, your every thought, you, your everything, your every song I ever sing. That is love affirmed. So in love's affirmation, the groom and his kingly entourage begins that wedding procession, chapter 3, verse 7. Big moment, lots of extravagance, lots of public display. I love her, verse 10, the pageantry of it all. And before it ever gets started, mama put the crown on the boy. Isn't that beautiful? The happiest day of his life, his mother puts the crown and says, now you go get her. That's affirming. That's point number two. Love, love's affirmation, affirmation is public. Number three, love's consummation is private. Kind of. This is what I mean. In that time, in that place, standard practice was the groom would arrive at the home, as we've learned, pick up the bride to take them to their new home, which was all prepared. Uh, Genesis chapter 29 tells us a little bit about that. So together, the couple went back to the groom's house. There were friends there. They were singing and they were dancing, if you would, uh, there on the procession to that same inn. And we don't know the exact rituals of what took place, but this is what we can be sure of. One, there was some kind of dialogue between the bride and the groom. Uh, Marriage vows, marriage promises. Chapter 4 there is pretty much what they used. Do you remember your vows? Will you have this woman, this man to be your wife, your husband, to live together in holy matrimony, right? Will you, will you love them and comfort them and honor and keep them in sickness and in health? Rich, poor, forsaking all others, be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. And then you say, I do. There's more. I take you, right, to be my wife, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, better, worse, and on. I honor you with my body and all my worldly goods with you I share. That's a solemn vow. And by the way, again, chapter 4 was probably part of those vows. Then after the vows, there was the customary blessing. So whether it was the parents or the synagogue leader, actually the father, there was some kind of blessing bestowed on the couple. And then came the feast, food, music, and dancing. And then later that evening, the couple would vanish. And they were there then to consummate the marriage privately. Just think of that, kind of. The setting is this. The people are out there having a pretty good time. (laughs) The couple's in their quarters consummating the marriage. And... If you can imagine as a song, so the song is fast, 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 the couple goes away, then you turn it down a little bit, because actually everybody's kind of waiting, anticipating. And so they, they do what marital couples do for the first time, and then they come out, and everybody knows that they're together forever until death doesn't part, and they've consummated the marriage. And then the, the, the music turns up, and the festivities go on. Sometimes marriage ceremonies lasted six, seven days. But I, but I want you to see this. The love that is consummated, it began with vows and then blessing and then celebration and then I give you my body in the eyes of God, in the eyes of people, kind of, because they know what was taking place and in their own eyes. The two become one. Now, are you just like lots of 
events, lots of events. So they come together as one. Now, if you know your Bible, that's a far cry from, from King David's first night with Bathsheba, who was Solomon's mother. Remember the story? Bathsheba was Solomon's mother. Solomon's father was King David. They were not married the night they came together. The night that they came together was unholy. It was, it was lust. If you read 2 Samuel, you'll notice right off the bat, it's just so, so objective. It's just flat words. There's no pageantry, straightforward facts. These are all the verbs. Saw, King David. Saw, sent, took, lay, done. That was it. Saw, say, look, took, done. Very cold. Bathsheba is described as the woman. Objective. Uh, she was just a thing to him. The complete opposite of the consummation that we just described here. Think about that. Love displayed is, is just magnificent, affirmed, and then consummated. Nice and slow and romantic and involves every part of you, not just the body, but the mind and the brain and the eyes and contemplation and thinking and thinking and thinking and more thinking so you could be so descriptive about the person you love. And then finally, love approved. Did you miss that? Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered them, my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And there, you understand that. And then the friends who were there to, to be part of the celebration, uh, confirming their consummation, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says. This is a deep benediction of approval. In other words, they did it right. And our heavenly Father affirms this in song. It's like every step you took, good, 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 good. Now you just eat, eat and celebrate and enjoy. You have God's blessing. Okay, now let's just be real honest then. Let's just try to make some application in this. Because the fact is that the vast majority of times, it does not work out this way. The majority of Americans right now think that premarital sex is okay. Something like 80-something percent. 52% of Protestant Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is either sometimes acceptable or always acceptable. By the age of 20, this is the pew, so they're generally good data. By the age of 20, 75% of people have had premarital sex. By the age of 30, 82. By the age of 44, I don't know why they choose that number, 44, 88%. And loved ones, let's just be real honest. Everyone in the world has had at least one lustful thought. And so this is just for the broken people. If you're broken, you can be helped. Because again, the fact of this biblical song about love and sex is connected to the name of Solomon. That, that should just, what? You wouldn't call him up to write a book about this, would you, in this world? Jesus Christ, though, came into the world of sexually broken people like Solomon's 
people who were satisfied with something else a whole lot of times. They drank, if you would, dirty water when Jesus offers them fresh water. But because they drank the dirty water, let's just say it like this. Because Joe drank dirty water, Jesus set aside his security, his glory. He sets aside the intimacy of his father. And he lays himself open to abuse, to assault, to lies. He comes to this world and the world hates him. And Jesus did not ever experience the joys of earthly marriage, the joys of of having a family, the joys of sex that we can take for granted. And so instead of that, he sets aside his life. He sets aside his rights for the sake of his bride, the church, for her, for you, for me. And he goes to the cross and he puts down his life so that we could be lavished with his love. And we could have this beautiful garment, we'll call it our wedding day garment, of spotless, perfect righteousness. So that now when the Father looks at you, no matter what happened in the past, he doesn't gaze upon some ugly record of sin, not if you're in Christ. And he doesn't even get, he doesn't even gaze, you know, when we're prideful about the fact that we trusted in our own strength and we maintained our purity because, you know, we really just doubled down and we got serious. No glory to God, all glory to you. So God does not see your sexual sin, Christian. He sees you clothed in Jesus and he welcomes you always for Jesus' sake. Chapter four, verse seven again, do you see it there? There is no flaw in you, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, that gift can be yours. Now, as the woman and the men had those long studied gazes at each other, a lot of good things happen. Here's an application for you. Have some long gazed studies at the beauty and the ministry of the scarred body of Jesus Christ. You you look again and again to what he's done for you. Look back in the time of Christ on the cross. Think about his blood shed, atoned for my wandering eyes and, and wandering heart and wandering keyboards. Think about his body laid in a tomb. Gaze upon Jesus Christ, exalted in heaven now, given the name that's above every name. And then you look onward, push your eyes past your death to your entry into heaven. And think about the day where he's going to come down, if you would, as the Revelation says, that, that uh, bride, a groom waiting for his bride, and the bride comes and all our longings will be satisfied. You see, every day we reject the holiness of Jesus Christ in a million different ways. And only a part of it we're conscious of. If Jesus Christ was keeping a record of wrongs, who could stand? At any moment, at any day, even on our best days, Jesus Christ could have legally said to us, now listen carefully, he could have said at any moment, enough of this. I can't do this anymore. I am leaving you. You have violated my love for the last time. This is unfixable. Be gone. He's justified to do that. But he doesn't. And you see, that truth is that truth is beautiful. So you, you never 
have met a more wronged spouse than Jesus Christ. You've never met a more disrespected spouse than Jesus Christ. You've never met a spouse who, who more than carried the weight of the relationship than Jesus Christ. He carried the entire weight of the relationship on his back. It's the only hope for holiness. The thing is totally one-sided. And yet, what does he do? What does he do? Okay? He loves, and he gives, and he serves, and he delights, and he affirms. You are so beautiful. You are so lovely. No flaw in you. And he consummates, and he washes, and he cleans, and he points the way. He woos and pursues. Gentlemen, ladies, can I do this? They love healthy marriage. They love and they give and they serve and they delight and they affirm. You are so beautiful. You are so handsome. He con- you consummate. You wash. You clean. You point to the way. You woo and you pursue. So Jesus Christ does not just tolerate us. He heaps affection on us. He sanctifies us. He justifies us. And one day he's going to glorify us even though he knows what we really are. He knows who we really are, and he gave up his life anyway. Died to forgive, raised to justify. You want to say, be still my beating heart. Here is a groom worth worth living for and living with. And listen, because the gospel is true, Let's say you have a past. You can't let that past drag you down, whether it was 60 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 year ago, 1 month ago, 1 night ago, last night. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in fullness over me. Oh, happy day. Remember that song, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. When I'm stained with guilt and sin, he's there to lift me, heal me, and forgive me. Gives me strength to stand again, stronger than I was before. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my sexual disgrace. And gave me life again. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. The triumph. The triumph of His grace. So just don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Marriage, purity. Finally forgiving yourself for all those terrible things. And if you're dealing with these sexual issues, just because it's taking longer than you expected doesn't mean it's going to happen forever. Change will come. Ezekiel 16, 62 and 63, I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So when the evil one comes and, I'm, and he gets out his old copybook, let me remind you of what you, remember when you, and he goes through the garbage of your past life, you tell him, and excuse the language, you tell him to go to hell where he belongs. You tell him Christ died, Christ rose, Christ ascended, and Christ will return. 
So we're not trying to use this as a mechanism for excuse. Please don't hear that. But we're not going to let the lies of the evil one demote the cross of Jesus Christ and act like it doesn't mean a thing, even in sexual sin. A quote, and then we're done. This is from a Puritan. Listen to what he says. When I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. And I am in Christ. And I hope all of you are too. Because this is good news. This is good news in a very, very broken world. Filled with broken people like me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gift of marriage. We would pray for Jesus' sake that you would preserve and protect the homes of this congregation. May every home know your peace, know your holiness and your truth. Fashion the hearts of the men to love their women and the women to love their men and the kids to love their parents and the parents to love their kids. Those who desire to be married again, God, help them. Such a difficult task at times for some. And we pray that the homes, everyone in the homes would walk in the faith and be saved. That you would cause your peace to dwell under their roof and bless the labor of their hands and bless their marital love. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. God bless you. You're dismissed.